And let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1 this morning. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. And they have Bibles. Just wave and get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands. It's always great to hear the Word of God, but always better to hear it and be able to read it with your own eyes. Sunday morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And this morning, we officially close that series now with the final uh, act of Jesus's earthly ministry known as the Ascension. While we're still turning there, uh, gentlemen related to that conference, not only great teaching going to be there, there's going to be a great lunch that our very own Patrick and Paula Haug are going to be providing great fellowship, great worship. Information in the form of a flyer is available to you out in the information uh, counter. All right. Acts chapter one, three verses or four verses, verses nine through twelve. The word of the Lord. Now, when he that is Jesus had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Verse ten. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. Let's pray together. Father, we love what your word does in our life. There's nothing like it in the whole wide world. It really is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to go into places in our lives that nothing else can go, divide between the soul and the spirit and the flesh, Lord, in a way that nothing else can. And we pray, Lord, that you would just freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit right now and allow us just to commune with you as we consider the ascension of our Savior this morning. And we ask it in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we conclude our four-year, ten-and-a-half-month series on the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we conclude it with Jesus's final earthly act, his ascension into heaven, his return to the heaven that he had come from into this world in order to provide us with salvation, the forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God, the hope and the confidence of heaven after this life. And on and on and on we could go for all that we have and all that we are in Christ Jesus for the rest of the morning. Jesus' ascension was an important part of his earthly ministry, and it's important for each of us as Christians to understand its importance. There is uh, something more to the fact than it was the means that he left here and returned to heaven. When we hear about the ascension, when we talk about the ascension as Christians, when we read about the ascension in our own Bibles, the mention of that term is intended to produce uh, great truths, great understanding of what that ascension means to us. Things that bless our heart, things that warm our heart 
as we recognize the importance of the ascension, of his ascension into heaven, the vital truths that are connected with it. Someone has said that the resurrection was the Father's amen to Jesus's, it is finished. And I believe that. But I think you can say just as equally, and maybe more equally, that the ascension is the Father's amen to Jesus's, it is finished. And so this morning we want to look at the significance of the ascension and it, the impact that it's intended to have upon each of our lives as Christians. The parallel account, as we look at the event itself in verse 9, the parallel account of Jesus' ascension found in Luke's gospel lets us know that this ascension took place on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives toward Bethany. For those of you who have been to Israel, you have probably almost exclusively been on the western side of the Mount of Olives, looking down on the area of the Temple Mount area and then into Old Jerusalem. It isn't often that you go over the crest of Mount Olives to the east toward the Judean wilderness and toward Bethany, one of the reasons being which it's a little less secure area today. But that's where that ascension took place, the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus has already given his final instructions to the disciples, calling on them to be faithful to the great commission of making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he has already communicated to them that they would be successful against all odds because of the greatness of the power of the Holy Spirit that he would supply to them once he had ascended into heaven. We notice in verse nine concerning this ascension. And I, you know, when you read the Bible um, and I can get more detail oriented than the average person cares for me to, but uh, the significance related to all of it and the, the description of these events and the Holy Spirit, he's, he's not a blabbermouth. He just doesn't say things to say things. He's very concise, very terse in his descriptions. There's a reason behind everything, every part of his description. And you notice his description of Jesus' ascension in verse 9. He declares first that he was taken up. It does not say that he went up. Uh, we're told that he was taken up. And so Jesus does not initiate this event. It implies that God the Father was the agent who took Jesus back into heaven. And the Father taking Jesus back up into heaven was a communication or a revelation to all of us that what Jesus had come into the world, he had, he had completed. He had fully completed the ascension of Jesus into heaven is heaven's mission accomplished, finished in terms of Jesus' life and his ministry and what he had come to do in his first coming. It was heaven's well done. We notice that a cloud received him out of the sight of the disciples. So he was received into heaven. So you take these two phrases, he was taken up and a cloud received him, and both of them are designed, at the very least, to communicate the excitement of God the Father 
and the excitement of heaven itself to have Jesus back in their midst. It is a considerable sacrifice on the part of heaven, on the part of God the Father, for him to be here for the 33 and a half years that he was here in this world accomplishing our salvation. And so heaven is excited to have Jesus back in their midst. And it communicates to us this, and it's important in the culture and the world in which we live, that whatever this world thinks of Jesus, whatever mankind thinks of Jesus, whatever individual people think of Jesus, God the Father and and heaven itself, they are were greatly excited to have him back in heaven. He is beloved by heaven. He is prized by heaven. I'll tell you, I'm glad that when I die, I am going to a place that loves Jesus. I wouldn't want to spend a day of my life in this life, much less an eternity in a place that doesn't love Jesus. There's something wrong with a world that doesn't love Jesus. And more personally, there's something wrong with an individual human life that does not treasure and does not love Jesus. We notice that he was taken up in a cloud. And that cloud wasn't just a random kind of spring cloud that was over the top of the Mount of Olives on that particular day. This cloud was a supernatural cloud. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God would make his presence known very often through a cloud. When Moses dedicated the tabernacle at the time of Moses, God gave an indication that he was now going to inhabit that tabernacle by a great cloud representing his presence coming upon the whole scene. Later, when Solomon dedicated, as we'll see tonight in Second Chronicles, when he dedicated the temple to the Lord, the Lord made his presence known by a great cloud. It's called the Shekinah glory of God that represents his presence. God would lead the children of Israel during the wandering in the wilderness, and he would lead them by day by a cloud. It represented his presence. And so here is this great Shekinah glory cloud of God representing the presence of God. And uh, it spoke of the presence of God the Father and of his very tender love for his son. Jesus prayed on the night before his crucifixion, John chapter 17, in what is known as the high, his great high priestly prayer. And he prayed to the Father and he said this, He said, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world ever was. And in this ascension, the Father answers the prayer of the Son. The last thing that the disciples witnessed of Jesus was to see him wrapped up in the fullness of the glory of God the Father returning to heaven. I'll tell you, I'd like a picture of that. It would have been something to see. Now, concerning the significance of the ascension, it must be a significant event and significant for us to understand as Christians because the Holy, Spirit's, Holy Spirit references the ascension no less than 20 times 
in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. So I ask myself, if it's so significant to the Holy Spirit, I want to know why. Why is the ascension of Jesus so important? And I'll give you several reasons why this morning. Jesus' ascension was heaven's stamp of approval on all that Jesus ever did, all that he ever was, all that he ever said. And I would like if, if a person doesn't get anything more out of this morning's sermon related to the ascension, that you would remember that one thing, that every time that ascension is mentioned, that it was heaven's stamp of approval upon everything about Jesus, his life, his teaching, uh, everything that he did. If Jesus had misrepresented the Father in any way, if he had taught any error at all, if he had been sinful in any way, he would have never been received as he was at his ascension. Number two, Jesus' ascension means that we have a high priest who now sits at the right hand of the Father. And that's significant. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote concerning this, Hebrews 8.1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The right hand of God is a place of honor. It speaks of authority. And thus the fact that Jesus has ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father reminds us that our Savior, our Jesus, occupies the place of supreme power in all of the universe. We hear the world talking every so often. Someone will talk about the fact that they have friends in high places and what that friend in high places can accomplish for them, the opportunities that that friend opens up to them, the privileges that that friend opens up to them that they wouldn't otherwise know. The ascension reminds us as Christians that we have a friend in very high places, the highest place of all, a friend who is also our high priest. And our high priest, Jesus, has an access to the Father that the Old Testament priests could only have dreamed of. And so he is able to, supremely able, to guide us, to protect us, to supply us every day, as the Bible says, with the grace and the mercy that we have need of each and every day. Number three, Jesus' ascension reveals all of mankind, to all of mankind, that the only righteousness, the only rightness, the only right onness that is acceptable in heaven is Jesus' righteousness. That is perfection. Jesus' ascension into heaven reminds us that in and of ourselves, each and every one of us, as fallen descendants of Adam and Eve, are disqualified from getting into heaven on our own, on the basis of our own righteousness or our own rightness or on the basis of our own good works or our own human effort. Because the Bible teaches there's none righteous, no, not one. No descendant of Adam and Eve is righteous or sinless or perfect. 
Again in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is God's assessment of every human being in this world today in human history an extreme assessment when he declares of each and every one of us that we're sinners? That we're less than perfect. Is that so crazy of an idea? Is that so incredible a truth that every single person should glom onto that for the truth that it is, that it would find no resistance in a human life? I've been imperfect my whole life. You've been imperfect. Your whole life. It's not some extreme, inconceivable thing that God would assess each one of us to be less than perfect. And is it so inconceivable that heaven is such a holy place that but one sin in our life, let alone a lifetime of sin, would disqualify us from entering into that heavenly scene. I'll tell you, it makes perfect sense to me. I see nothing to balk against, nothing to rebel against. It's perfectly logical. It would be illogical to fight the assessment, fight the wonder of it. The wonderful thing about God is he doesn't leave us just with the assessment of our sinfulness. And the fact that in and of ourselves we are unfit to enter into the glory of heaven. But God goes on to describe how it is that he has made a way for the perfect righteousness, the perfect sinlessness of Jesus to be put to our account And to be put to our account by faith. When any human being on the face of this earth today, and it will happen all over this world today, where a human being looks at God and says, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. And I believe your revelation concerning heaven, that it is such a holy place. That that sin has disqualified me from entering in on the basis of my own righteousness. But God, I also believe the truth that's wrapped up in your son, that you loved me so much that you sent him into the world to die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sin. And that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And today I turn from my own ways. It's called repentance. I turn from my sin, my self-will. I turn from all of those things. And I turn to this Jesus, the Savior and the salvation that pleases you. And I put my trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins. And when a person does that, not only are they forgiven, but the Bible teaches that the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to that person. And the word impute is an accounting firm. It means to be put to our account. So for the rest of this life and all of the life to come, When Jesus looks at my life because God looks at my life because of my faith in Christ, he does not see my unrighteousness. 
He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ put to my account that now makes it able for a sinner like me to get into heaven. And the same thing is true of every single Christian. Of Abraham, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, and therefore it was accounted to him by faith for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be this righteousness on the basis of faith. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty one. For he that is the father made him that is Jesus who knew no sin, perfect righteousness to become sin on that cross, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Speaking of Christ's righteousness being put to our account. And before Jesus' ascension means that we have an advocate with the Father. We have a defense attorney in heaven, and we need a defense attorney in heaven. First John chapter two, verse one. You're not offended that I included you. John wrote and he said, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The word advocate there is a variation of a term called the parakletos. It means one who has come alongside to help. And it speaks of Jesus in his capacity as one who speaks to the Father on our defense. And the picture is one of a courtroom in heaven, so to speak, where you have God the Father as a judge. And then we are there in that same courtroom as a defendant. Satan is there as the prosecuting attorney. One of the names for Satan in the Bible is the accuser of the brethren. And here he is laying out a case against one of us for some sin that we have committed. And in this case is absolutely airtight. It's watertight. We have sinned and he has laid the case for that sin. We're as guilty as can be. And as he lays it out and as we stand in that courtroom, we realize that in and of ourselves, we have no defense. We are absolutely everything looks hopeless for us. And then Jesus, our defense attorney, rises in that heavenly courtroom, so to speak, and he comes to our defense, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of his work upon the cross. And he declares in that courtroom, charge that to my account. I died so that sin could be forgiven. He never loses in that courtroom. He never loses before the throne of the Father. You thought Perry Mason was something. Or for those of you who watched the Flintstones, Perry Masonary. Do you remember that episode? Number five, the ascension reminds us that Jesus ascended into heaven in order to make a set intercession for us. Romans chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. 
Who is he who condemns? Well, the devil. We go down the list. But who can do it successfully? If it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I don't know that there's a more comforting thought in all of the Christian life than the realization that Jesus never ceases to pray for me and to pray for you. Right now, you sit here in this room. He is interceding for you. Morning, noon, night, whether you're at work, at class, raising the kids, in the marriage, the trial, all the different things that we face. He never ceases to intercede for you personally. And he has a knowledge that he bases his prayers on that we have we're completely oblivious to. I mean, we know the immediate thing that we're in the middle of. We could give suggestions as to how somebody ought to pray for us. The Bible says concerning him, everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. He can intercede with a thoroughness and a beauty that, that we can't even dream of. And he intercedes for us all of the time as Christians. Sometimes we can think of the fact that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he's just kind of twiddling his thumbs and waiting until the day that he gets word to come back and take us into heaven uh, itself. Is it, if he's kind of being idle there with nothing much to do. No, no, no. He's, he's not being idle at all. Not when you and I make up his flock. His position as our advocate, his position as the one who intercedes for us in the light of our needs, I'll tell you, that keeps him as busy as busy could be. Number six, Jesus' presence at the right hand of the Father means that he's even more effectually present in the world through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he was in his uh, incarnation here in the world, He could only be one place at a time. But he spoke to the disciples and he said in John chapter 16, John chapter 14, he said, listen, it's better for you that I ascend into heaven so that I can then send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is everywhere, all at once, able to inhabit all of God's people, all at the same time, empower us for the work that God has called us to do. And the single great evidence that Jesus was and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that the ascension, that he not only ascended into heaven outside of our eye shot, beyond the vanishing point, to the right hand of the Father, the great evidence of it was on the day of Pentecost when he sent the Holy Spirit and the church was baptized on that day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit sent even as Jesus said that he would. And Jesus now, through the Holy Spirit, active now in his work through our lives, according to his purposes for our lives in this world. And finally, Jesus' ascension reminds us that he is preparing heaven itself as a future home for us. Jesus declared to his disciples, he said, in my father's house are many mansions. He said, if it weren't so, I would have told you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I remember the first time as a new Christian 
And if you walk with the Lord long enough, you'll hear it a million times. But it should never move us from the awe of it. I remember the first time I ever heard somebody teach and say, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and Jesus has been preparing heaven for us for 2,000 years. Wow, what it must be. I can't wait to see it. Jesus has ascended, and it reminds us that he is preparing heaven for us as his bride. And so the ascension of Jesus is meant to inspire, and every one of us as Christians, this supreme confidence in the power of God and the power of our Savior and the greatness of his love for us. Notice in verse 10 the response of the disciples to his ascension. (laughs) And you can picture it in your mind. I picture it in my mind. It tells us that they looked steadfastly toward heaven as Jesus went up. And the Greek verb that's used to describe their, their looking up It means that they are watching him ascend and their eyes go from watching to straining to now tension. Uh, Kind of like as you get a little bit older and you're trying to read the medical bottles in line at the store. You knew you should have got the trifocals, but you were too vain to get them uh, just yet. So there's a sense in which they not only watched Jesus ascend as long as they could before he went beyond the vanishing point, beyond where the boundary of, of vision. I don't know how many of you ever lost a helium balloon when you were a kid. They got the balloon so excited they put it on there. You're going to take it home, put it in your room. It's probably going to last for three or four days. So excited. And then somehow you do something, you're fiddling with it, and then it just goes off. Wouldn't you like to ride? So it's just off it goes, you know, and it's 50 cents, you know, a million years ago. That was a lot of money on that kind of stuff. And you watch that thing go. And since now you're not going to enjoy it any longer than you can have your eye on it, you would just watch it until it finally just absolutely disappeared. A kite was good for the same thing, too. If you'd fail to get another roll of string on it and, and then it would go off and you'd watch it in the same same way. But they stood there looking long after Jesus' ascension, long after he has gone from sight. And the fact that they're doing that, it indicates that they're trying to understand what just happened to them. They're trying to process this ascension. And And it wasn't just the awesome miracle of the ascension that has them gazing up, but the realization that now he's gone. I got a new normal now. Everything has changed because he's really gone. Not just making appearances for the 40 days following his resurrection from the dead to the time of the ascension. He has gone to heaven. And I'm convinced they're probably filled with a very wide variety of emotions, confusion, awe, reverence, sorrow. Uh, uncertainty, what is going to happen next in their lives. What they needed at that moment was a word from heaven, and that's precisely what Jesus provided them for them in verses 10 and 11 in the form of two angels. Those two angels communicated two things to the disciples in those two verses. Number one, the angels reminded them that this Jesus is coming back. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And it was a reminder to them. And it's the reminder to us that in some future time, 
Jesus will once again leave heaven, leave eternity. He will personally, physically reintroduce himself into time and into human history. It may be on May 20th, maybe on May 22nd, <laughs> it may be years from now, it may be this afternoon, we don't know. Don't sweat this May 21st thing at all. Why is it so hard? To believe it when Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. I was listening to a radio show. And they just happened to come. They came on this person and everything to explain how they had come up to that date. (laughs) Have you heard the explanation? You take the Pythagorean theorem over here and a little nutmeg over here. And then you throw in a poem from uh, Longfellow and then you bring it's the most obtuse thing I've ever heard in my whole life. I wouldn't bet the shirt I'm wearing on that date on the basis of what I heard, much less that. Well, people are are free to be foolish. And but well, we really aren't as Christians because we represent the Lord. But. You can put camper vans and put all these things and put signs all over the side of them. Like I saw one over in the Lowe's parking lot yesterday, Judgment Day, May 21st, and the whole deal and all. And and I think, well, you know, whatever people want to do. But what really bothers me about the whole thing is is driving down the freeway toward Lathrop. And they got that big old gigantic billboard And they got all the nonsense of naming the date and the whole thing. And again, I would just look at it and say, whatever. But they have right down the lower left-hand corner, the Bible guarantees it. Now you got me upset. You just poked me in the eye with a stick, spiritually speaking. Because now when he does not come on May 21st, because the Bible says he's coming in a day that we think not, So when he doesn't come on May 21st, it's not just their reputations that are sullied by this kind of thing. But God's reputation is because the average person going down that highway does not know the Bible and they don't know that those people are speaking presumptuously and even incorrectly for God. And so Jesus is coming back. It'll be the perfect timing. We don't need to know the day or the hour. And the angel reminds them of that fact. And then the angels said to them a second thing. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? In other words, why are you still looking up into heaven? I believe you've been given a great commission. I believe we have work to do, gentlemen. And we can't have you standing here for the next 2,000 years, standing up into heaven and uh, becoming skeletons. And uh, so he reminds them of the work that they need to do. And taken together, we are to have our hearts and our minds set upon the return of the Lord Jesus at his second coming and the rapture 
of the church prior to that. But that is never to translate into idleness. It is always to translate into us being busy about God's business and that moment in human history that we have the privilege of living for him in. As Jesus spoke to the disciples, he said, occupy until I come. Take care of business until I come. Share the gospel until I come. Live for me. Obey me until I come. Be faithful to my calling upon your life until I come. We're to be watching and waiting for Jesus' return, but we're also to be found working when he does come. And this is what the angels are communicating. There are some Christians, I don't say that there's a lot of them, I don't say that they're the majority of them, but I've known a few through the years who get very much into end times and they get into the prophetic side of all of these things and and they're looking for Jesus' return and all of it's great in that way, but they'll argue every number in the book of Revelation, every creature in the book of Revelation, and they've been in this and around and every and they never spend a day sharing the gospel with somebody else or serving someone else in the name of the Lord, putting a house back together, following a tornado or being faithful to live for the Lord at the school grounds or at the office building or or whatever it might be. And we get lost in our heads that way. And because God knows that we can, the angels come and say, yes, be looking for his return could happen at any time. But when he does return, let him find you busy about the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. Now, we notice the response of the disciples there in verse 12. Uh, It tells us that they then returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, but also by the Spirit of God, the author of the gospel, according to Luke, He records it this way as well. Now, it came to pass when Jesus blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. And because they lived their lives looking for the return of the Lord, but also busy about God's call upon their lives and to share the gospel and fulfill the Great Commission. We sit here in this room this morning clothed and in our right minds when we would not otherwise be. If you sit here this morning, we're going to partake of communion in just a moment. But if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you've never yet put your simple trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a very simple thing to do, as I described earlier in the service. And if that's something that you look and you say, I want to put my trust in Jesus as the for, for the forgiveness of my sins. I want to be born again. I want a relationship with God. I want to know that I'm going to go to heaven after this life. You can do that in an instant in your seat by just saying, God, what that man is talking about. I agree with all of that. I agree with your invitation. I want that. I trust in your son and God almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life right now. And then you can enjoy the Lord's Supper with us this morning. 
If you sit here today, this morning and you are not a Christian, you say, no, I'm not ready to do that. I, I, I'm glad for what I've heard. I'm not ready to go there just yet. Terrific. Just enjoy the rest of the service, the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Supper. Just don't partake of it yourself. It's important not to partake of the symbols of Jesus's body and his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins before we have partaken of the reality of that in our lives. And so if the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward, we will serve the Lord's Supper. When the um, cracker is passed and then after it, the